Well, welcome to episode 83 of The Professor and the Hack, and a, a deep thanks, uh, PVO, as uh, you rejoin us as, of course, The Professor. Um, and we give our thanks to uh, Professor Simon Jackman from the U.S. Study Center, who stood in for a couple of episodes talking about events in the United States, uh, which have really sort of dominated uh, the summer in so many ways. But we're back and into it. Scott Morrison is back and into it. Parliament is back and into it. Uh, Scott Morrison starting at the National Press Club. Peter, with uh, the speech that lays out everything he has planned for the year, and it's a pretty, it's a, it's an important but pretty short agenda yeah g'day Hugh it, it certainly was I mean I, I was there for it uh, he had his five point plan the last one was caring for Australia and when I tried to work out what that was uh, that was a soil enhancement program um, so he wants to provide appropriate manure presumably for uh, Australia's rich soil to be fertile uh, for the political year ahead plenty of metaphors there um, the main thing that really came out of the speech, apart from the fact that it was obviously a scene setter for what might end up being an election year, was that he crab walked that little bit closer, I suppose, to this idea of net zero emissions by 2050. You know, there's plenty of short term stuff about the vaccine there, and obviously that matters to people's lives now. But in terms of major policy positions, I thought that was probably the biggest one that came out of it in terms of a signal uh, that they were perhaps going to get there. Uh, in the weeks and months ahead. So, so you say crab walk. These are baby step crab walks, if we could extend that, <laughs> that metaphor. So he has previously said our goal is to reach net zero emissions as soon as possible, as quickly as possible. He now says our goal is to reach uh, net zero emissions as soon as possible, preferably by 2050. So that's the crab walk, <laughs> is it is now kind of now thrown onto the table, this notion that perhaps the policy that Labor took into the last election of net zero emissions by 2050 may be absorbed into coalition policy going into the next election. And it's interesting because there, there are different schools of thought on this. One school of thought says, oh, look, surely he can't do this because he'll have a war with the nationals, notwithstanding whatever authority he thinks he has. Uh, a lot of the nationals led by Barnaby Joyce and you know the likes of George Christensen and Matt Canavan, they will have this as a perfect stick to attack Michael McCormick with. So therefore, Michael McCormick, by extension, because of his own political situation internally, can't go along with it. So that's, that's one school of thought. The other school of thought is, well, he's got nothing to lose here. He's got so much authority. He ain't going anywhere. And what does anyone care if they commit to net zero emissions by 2050? Half of them, uh, if not more, won't be alive by then, much less still in politics. So it's a, a somewhat meaningless you know, thing to say, other than when you put the meat on the bones of it in terms of policy scripts. So just say, yeah, sure, we'll do it. Uh, so there are different schools of thoughts on this actual issue, uh, and not only what he'll do, but whether indeed he should do it. I guess the the point is, is that those, you obviously point to the Nationals, but also there'll be some within uh, the Liberal Party as well, uh, who will say, hang on a minute, we fought against this. We said this was such a dumb idea at the yeah. last election, and particularly we have an election in, in 2021, this year, the, 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 two and a half years ago, we said this was uh, going to be you know, the destruction of the economy, that it was irresponsible, bloody, but now we're taking it into the same election. So whether or not it happens in 2015, you're quite right. Who's going to be held accountable by the time, you know, the, there are not many currently in office 
unless Kevin Andrews is reborn, who will still be there in 2050. But, um, <laughs> but you know, the point about it is it's what they take into an election. And where does that push Labour? Because it doesn't want to have the same climate policy uh, as, it, as, as Scott Morrison, quite clearly. So it presumably has to move more progressively in their own direction. Well, Labour's got their own problems because they've uh, got their net zero emissions by 2050 target, but they don't have any targets before then. Uh, and that has its own issues because if they adopt the government's target for 2030, then they'll be sort of panned a little bit about that because they're, they're sort of, well, they're, they're working very slowly towards one. But if they don't have a target uh, at all going into the next election, then they're actually potentially in violation of the Paris Agreement because the Paris Agreement, you have to have a 2030 target. And if you don't, then you can't be part of Paris. Now, they would argue that we would develop one once in government. And that's where they're trying to deal with their own internal issues, I suppose, the Labor Party, that is. They're trying to um, almost delay having to seriously address what their climate policy will be by using the argument uh, that this is complex and this is really an incumbency policy area. So you can have some broad brush strokes of what you philosophically believe in, in opposition. But when it comes to brass tacks, you need to be in government to have full access to all the data and the information. And that's a, that's a, that's one way of them saying that that was a political problem for them at the last election, which it clearly was. So Labor went into the last election saying there'd be no carbon tax. Uh, and this goes to the, the critical question where they now both have a position uh, that, that they're not going to do it through revenue raising. Um, Scott Morrison saying that the, the emissions reductions will come through technology, not through tax. So they're, they're broadly speaking, for all the hiss and roar about energy policy, they seem, there seems to be some process of convergence. Um, and yet, at the same time, you look at a guy like um, Twiggy Forrest, who says that if all we do is reach net zero globally by 2050, the world will be, in his words, quote, toast, uh, that it's not going to be enough. And there's some, some other arguments out there that, uh, that those emissions targets, because we've already been pumping emissions in the interim at too high a level, uh, that, that at some stage those emissions targets are going to have to come down. Um, but the convergence interests me, given all the pain and suffering over energy policy over the last decade or so. Yeah, the idea that at the end of it all, we might end up with two major parties for very different reasons, interestingly enough, that end up with very similar policies. You know, a Labor Party that would like to do a lot more, but the electoral consequences of that have been profound for them and the political capacity for the government to tear at them. So they minimise their ambition, at least while they're in opposition, let's say. Then you've got a government, a coalition government, uh, that has made it its stock and trade to absolutely slam uh, bolder policy choices in this area, turning around now and actually trying to read the tea leaves for the future. And not, not when it comes to the environment, ironically, but because of politics and saying, well, if we don't get with this program, we could find ourselves looking like the dinosaurs that a lot of people thought we would look like over recent years, but haven't in electoral terms. So we need to start to make some adjustments. Uh, and they meet, I wouldn't call it in the middle, because I think that we are laggards on this, but they meet somewhere in the middle between the two parties uh, with where they've been sort of sitting on this issue for so many years now. And, and then, of course, Hugh, you know this as well as anyone, you think back, back to us and you just sort of think, oh, God, is the biggest reason we're in this ridiculous situation on energy policy and on climate change policy 
because the Greens, and I almost hate to put it at their feet, but I, I'm going to, because the Greens decided uh, that they wouldn't support Kevin Rudd's initial emissions trading scheme because they didn't think it was bold enough uh, at a time when Kevin Rudd had support and had won an election on that policy where, frankly, John Howard was also advocating for an emissions trading policy as well. It could have been enacted with no fuss, supported by, you know, certainly the Greens and, and the Liberals looking silly for having backflipped from that position when Rudd was popular. And I don't know that we'd have the whole to do that we have now. I think we'd be more likely to be somewhere, at least in that space uh, that the UK is in, where the Conservatives over there are some of the strongest proponents for emissions trading. Indeed, that may be the case. But of course, uh, in in pure electoral arithmetic, ironically, if uh, Labour was to find itself pretty much in the same ballpark as the coalition, it may well be the Greens who benefit from those who are uh, more pure on climate change, saying, oh, well, the hell with the big parties. Um, the Greens are the only ones who are serious about it. That's, uh, I guess, the argument or, or, or their compensating um, belief that uh, it hasn't killed them off whatever happened um just on uh, i'll get we'll get on to labor and and its issues albo's issues its front bench reshuffle and everything but i wonder how significant you think joel fitzgibbon's behavior has been uh, some might see it as just a, a dummy spit by a man no longer really relevant others might see it as actually something far more influential than that i saw that uh, Anthony Albanese was being interviewed by Michelle Grattan, now of the conversation, in which um, he he couldn't even say that Joel Fitzgibbon would remain in the Labour Party, saying people will make their own decisions. He jumped off the front bench. Um, he got the reshuffle, at least in part, that he uh, had been pushing for. Uh, how influential has that been and will that continue to be as a kind of a check on uh, Anthony Albanese on getting too progressive with climate change policy? Yeah, look, it's uh, it, it's an it's absolutely a problem for Anthony Albanese because it's a pain in the ass, frankly. Um, but there's there's a lot at play here because you almost have to go right back. Joel Fitzgibbon was always stepping off the front bench at the end of last year, irrespective of whether he had some sort of issue with the Labor Party's policy around energy and climate. There was a deal that was done when Christina Keneally got a front bench position, taking up a, a spot of the right, but not only getting a front bench position, but also taking a leadership group position as well, as it turned out, as deputy leader in the Senate. There was a view in the right that they couldn't deny her that position. And you know, rightly so, I would argue she's a former state premier. It would have looked ridiculous if she was unable to secure front bench promotion. The deal that was done for her to get that was that Ed Husick stepped off the front bench as a member of the New South Wales right but he would be returned to the front bench at the end of the year, at the end of 2020. Uh, this was a deal done after the election when Joel Fitzgibbon would step off the front bench at that point in time. Now, maybe Joel didn't think it would ever come to that. Uh, maybe he was frustrated by the time he got to that point. Maybe he added into that mix of what was going to happen, you know, e even greater concerns than he'd already expressed uh, about climate change and energy policy. Uh, remembering, of course, that him and, Anthony Albanese were actually quite close when Labor was in government because they were, you know, plotters might be too strong a word, but certainly advocates for a Rudd takeover from Julia Gillard for quite some time. So Joel Fitzgibbon honours the deal within the New South Wales right and steps out, in comes 
Ed Husick, but he does it in a blaze of glory. And there was some discussion, apparently, that there was a disagreement between Joel and Albo when it came to timing about leaving the front bench. And Joel ended up just deciding to do it as part of what some are calling a hissy fit. But others are making the point that he's actually long had an issue um, on Labor's climate and energy policy, making the point, whether he's right or wrong, uh, that they lose mainstream electors, and particularly electors in working class zones like his own up in the Hunter uh, that rely on mining and so forth, uh, where his seat was almost lost to One Nation at the last election. So there's all sorts of things going on. Most people assume that Joel Fitzgibbon won't run at the next election. Uh, some cynics are saying that he's positioning himself for a sort of almost Martin Ferguson-type post-parliamentary career uh, where he immerses himself in the resources sector, and maybe this is a play ahead of that. Uh, the other consequence is to take all of that cynicism out of it and maybe he just genuinely thinks that Labor is in the wrong space he certainly targeted Mark Butler didn't he uh, and Mark Butler ended up in this recent reshuffle getting moved out uh, of the climate change policy for Labor for the first time in years uh, into the shadow health portfolio but the other issue with Joel just very quickly Hugh is that um, there's a he's, he personifies a fracture in the right of the New South Wales Liberal Party uh, and it's a fracture based on policy as well as a fracture based on personalities. And it's whether you sort of fall into the Bowen or Burke camp. Uh, now, Joel, broadly speaking, falls into the Bowen camp. But the interesting thing about that is Bowen is now the uh, shadow climate change spokesperson. And what we will find out eventually is whether Bowen taking shadow climate change is Albanese capitulating to Joel Fitzgibbon in a more moderate form, or is it uh, Bowen casting Fitzgibbon adrift so that he no longer represents, uh, at least as a maverick version of, uh, that side of the New South Wales right. Fascinating insights into the internal workings. Is there a chance uh, among the options for Joel Fitzgibbon that he uh, stands as an independent because the, the biggest swings at the last election against Labor in any, in any uh, counting booths were, were in the seat of Hunter? Um, you know, he might shore up his position if he wants to stick around and, and have all the freedom of movement that you're allowed as an independent uh, rather than trying to stick in there. I don't think so. Uh, that would, that would, put it this way, that would very much surprise me. The reason being that he has always been a Labour man. He's been quite critical of his one-time mate, Mark Latham, for the direction that he ultimately went post his time as Labour leader. Uh, but also he's very close to Don Farrell, uh, and Don Farrell you know, would be aghast at the idea of deserting the Labor Party uh, as long as the Labor Party didn't desert that sort of more conservative right faction of, of its own uh, internals. So it would really surprise me. And, and what does he get out of that? I mean, staying part of the Labor Party, uh, he has the potential to come back to the front bench. I, I think this is more likely him at the tail end of his political career, just not being prepared to button up the way that uh, he has in the past. But it sounds to me like he won't be running at the next election, but we'll see. Okay, let's take a quick break. Uh, PVO, much to discuss. Talk in a moment. Hey, Husey here. You can't get enough of Husey. We have a problem. Channel 10's hit show. Well, now there's more to get. We've got a podcast. Find it at your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. This is episode uh, 83 of, uh, of The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimmington, the Professor Peter Van Onselen, and uh, we're discussing how the year is getting underway. Um, let's go back to that uh, speech made by um, 
the prime minister setting out the priorities for the year. And plainly, we talked about climate change, but COVID is going to dominate this year. Uh, there has been some criticism that he doesn't have a wider um, reform agenda. He bristles at that, but but basically getting a vaccine out and getting on top of COVID and getting the economy going and getting jobs going, you would hope would be the priorities right now of, of any government. And that plainly seems to be where Scott Morrison's priorities lie. Yeah, I, I, I there was really, I, I had two things going on when I was sitting there watching this speech. On the one hand, exactly as you say, voters in particular, I think, want a government to only be focused in very much on the narrow short term. You know, 2020 was such a hellish year. 2021 doesn't look like being that much better yet. Uh, and there are issues around the vaccine rollout that no one is really certain where or how they're going to go. So I think all voters want is a feeling of stability, a feeling of certainty, and an end to 2021 when we get there that involves a successful rollout of the vaccine where things at least seem to be, if not normal, as a return to normal, close enough to that. And Morrison gets that um, for all his faults. Uh, he understands the electorate, I think, and he is the kind of leader who likes to follow. So <laughs> if that's how the electorate feels, he will follow those instincts. And those are understandable instincts from people after the year that we've just had. So I, I see all of that. What frustrated me, and, and I should say, in the context of seeing that, I therefore understand why he rejects calls for big reform at the moment, whether it's tax reform or whatever it might be. So I un understand the sentiment, I guess, is my point in terms of where the politics is at. People don't want any of that. And he expressed some of that in his answers to questions yesterday at the National Press Club. What I don't like, though, and this is almost like a byproduct of Trumpianism over the last four years, is the way he gets to that position. When asked about why won't he embrace, for example, tax reform, he doesn't just say because people don't want it now, people want certainty. He went on this rant in answer to a Phil Curry question yesterday where he said a carbon tax isn't tax reform. Increasing the GST isn't tax reform. That's just putting up taxes. Now, I'm not here to give a basic economics 101 lecture to a prime minister who should know better, who actually spent time as a treasurer. But if he thinks that that is not tax reform, it is just tax increases, then he is quite genuinely an absolute moron because that is the definition of tax reform. It becomes tax increases only if you don't do anything else but introduce a carbon tax or put up a GST. But that is what tax reform is. It's putting some taxes up or introducing new taxes so that you can change the tax mix and remove other taxes and make other changes that are structural that might create more efficient taxation or more indirect taxation if that's what you're after. If he doesn't think that a carbon tax or indeed putting up the GST constitutes tax reform, then he doesn't think that John Howard introducing the GST was tax reform. But it was because it included a host, as you know from the time, Hugh, of other changes to the mix as a result of doing so, fixing up wholesale sales tax, removing a whole bunch of other taxes in reducing income taxes. I, I can't believe that Scott Morrison is enough of a moron that he doesn't think that that is tax reform, but I think that's what politics has become. He can stand there as a national leader and deny that that is tax reform because he just simplifies politics now. 
if you just said people don't want it, I get it. I get it. People don't want it at the moment. They don't want tax reform. They don't want complex cities. They particularly don't want tax reform that involves, as it always does, having to put certain taxes up. But don't just tell us that putting taxes up doesn't equal tax reform. That is anti-intellectual garbage. It's, it's, thank you, uh, Peter. One of the things which strikes me about that, of course, is that no one's talking about a carbon tax. <laughs> so, um, or, or, or certainly Labor's not talking about a carbon tax. So, it's, so I see in that Scott Morrison, the marketer, who essentially creates straw man um, enemies and on a question about tax, takes an opportunity to talk about uh, taxes on, on, you know, by implication that are being suggested by others or that are being suggested by someone uh, which, in fact, are not um, one of the alternative propositions, uh, serious propositions for the future direction of the country. It's certainly not Labor's uh, policy. And so what he's doing is he's he's marking himself out in opposition to something that doesn't actually exist as a policy. And and in, in pure political marketing speak, that struck me as, as what he was doing. And, and he's quite good at that, at creating, well, we're not here to do this and that. Some people want this and that or whatever, when they don't. Um, but nevertheless, people walk away thinking, gee, is that what Labour wants? It's kind of almost like push polling. Yeah, it is a little bit. I mean, it's just that, that side of it, and that, that just frustrates me because not, not, not for the political tactics, good luck to him, do what you want. It frustrates me for the way that it actually makes the idea that people don't want tax reform a self-fulfilling prophecy as well because the way that he words it and approaches it makes it less likely that anyone's going to go there. But literally, it's just, it, 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 I, I sat there, I just burst out laughing, actually. I'm not sure anyone at the, my table quite understood why. But when he, when he said that it doesn't constitute tax reform, putting up taxes, it's just like, oh, mate. Like, I, I, I would be disappointed if my year nine daughter returned from her first ever economics class where they start teaching it in year nine. And at the end of the explainer about what constitutes tax reform, wasn't able to grasp that the only way you have tax reform is that some taxes go up because others go down. Like, it's just, it's so stupid. It just drives me nuts. Anyway, uh, that's I, for I a therapy intrigued. session, Hugh. Yeah, I was intrigued by your question to him. Basically, we said, what have you learned out of the, uh, you know, traumatic 2021? He gave an answer. Uh, what was his answer? What did you make of it? It was interesting. I mean, he, he didn't engage as much as I would have liked. Um, the background to that was that I was actually trying to get a, a better engagement from him because he doesn't like to reflect. Uh, so the book that Wayne Errington and I have coming out about Scott Morrison and his management from bushfires through to the pandemic uh, all since his election win, uh, we are trying to analyse him uh, and analyse all sorts of things about his leadership and what influences his decision-making and so on. But he, he doesn't like to reflect uh, both he and his office haven't wanted to engage with us writing a book. Uh, you know, that that doesn't have short-term marketing political value. So he's there, you know, he's always happy to engage at the at the journalistic level, but not at the scholarly level, I suppose would be the way to put it. That's not his thing. He is, I think, engaging in a hagiography that's getting written about him with cooperation later in the year, I'm told, but not a book where you don't agree to certain terms and parameters. So who's who's writing that? Uh, I think Annika Smithhurst is writing that actually. Um, and I, I don't say hey, you're to, <laughs> to have, an, have a crack at her, but my understand. I mean, I think she's even said this to people I've talked to as we've been interviewing other people who are prepared to talk to us uh, that, you know, 
theirs is the critical book, mine is the nicer one. I think that's the way that she's been talking to some people that we've both interviewed. Um, so, you know, he's because it's the nicer one, uh, he's prepared to, to, to cooperate a little bit more with it than he would with a book of mine, which I have no problem with. You know, he can do what he wants. But the context of that is he doesn't like to be very reflective because there's, there's no real electoral politics value in that, right? Me, so, me, but, me. but what he said was that he like what he said is that he had learnt to listen. To listen. Yeah, yeah. And, and the re- what I was telling you, Hugh, was the context for me actually asking that question. I wanted an answer to that because we didn't really have a decent answer to what he thought he'd learnt about leadership during the course of the last 12 months. We had our guesswork, but because he wouldn't cooperate and actually be reflective, we didn't have any thoughts from him. So I tried to ask, uh, you know, unusual in that sort of format, really. It's not that style, is it, normally at the National Press Club? But I tried to just ask a reflective question, uh, which could then feed into my analysis of the guy. And he he engaged with it because he said, I've learned to listen, but he didn't really give much more than that it was quite funny to watch his reaction because he said listen i've learned to listen and then he sort of stopped himself and said well i've always listened of course because he suddenly he's political in it right that the write-up could be okay scott morrison didn't used to listen um which was not what i was taking from it i think his point and this is what he then got to was that i've always listened sure but i've really sharpened my listening uh and then he lamented that the pandemic prevented him geographically moving around the country more than he otherwise might want to. And so therefore, you know, listening became even more important because it was hard to do so actually, because he wasn't able to get out there as much uh, in communities as he otherwise might like to. Now there's a bit of spin in that as well, but there's also some truth in it, I think. So that was interesting. I I guess part of the key thing is uh, who does he listen to? It's it's really important that he listens, but I think one of the, uh, any good leader listens uh, it's who you choose to listen to, obviously, will shape then the policy uh, measures that you take. And, you know, one of the examples he gave was the, the people of Gladstone on his recent trip up north in which he, he listened to their enthusiasm for uh, gas. Um, so, um, so it is all a question of who you listen to and what you apply. Ultimately, he has the, uh, you know, the, the, the responsibility for, for the whole nation. Uh, we're, we're not far short of being out of time, but I want to just ask a couple of policy matters and maybe throw it back to Labour. Um, interesting that uh, as we see job uh, uh, keeper come off at the end of next month, uh, the job seeker supplement uh, disappearing, uh, the potential that we're going to see a reversion back to the $40 a day new start or job seeker payment. Labor has uh, stood against that. It says it's too little to go on, $40 a day. I think almost every Australian would agree with that. But intriguingly, um, Anthony Albanese says that uh, he has still not done the costings on what is the right level. This is quite odd, isn't it? That Labor has held a position on principle that New Start job seeker is too low in its traditional non-pandemic level, and yet have not done the costings or haven't done the work to figure out what is an appropriate level. What is that telling us about either their fear of uh, of setting the you know everyone running in all directions, or alternatively just their lack of policy seriousness? Yeah, well, I mean, look, it's a strategy by him. I'm not defending it as a good one, but as an explainer, it's his strategy seems to be on that front. We're not in government. He doesn't. So he sort of wants to say we've got positions that we take, but costing things and putting the real detail behind how to implement 
implement things at what levels and what rates and so forth is a matter for incumbents to do. Now, he'll have to do it. He won't be able to run. I mean, he's already been criticised for that, not just uh, with questions being raised like you're raising, understandably now, but you know, others are doing it as well. Uh, but he, so he will have to do it in the lead to the election or he will be criticised even more. But he's trying to get away with this idea of saying, that's the job of government. So we're saying New Start is too low and it needs to go up. But when you then want to ask to what point, he is essentially dismissing that question by saying, well, we're not the government. Talk to them. They're the ones that need to make that decision. We're simply saying it has to go up and we would put it up if we were in government, the details of which we would be able to give you if we were in government. Now, it's a bit of a sort of circular argument, but that is that is their logic and Anthony Albanese's logic and why he's doing that. Uh, but I'm not sure it's serving him as well uh, as he would like, but it's sort of partly a blowback as well to some of the criticism, not in that space where Labor continued to be like that during Bill Shorten's time, but in other policy spaces where they did spell out things in a bit more detail and then were attacked for it. Mm. Okay, a couple of quick personality names. Um, Tanya Plibersek, was she demoted? Former deputy leader of the party, was she demoted in the reshuffle? No, no, I've been watching that. She lost skills. She was education and skills. She lost skills, but she gained Labor spokesperson for women. And that's important because... One for the other made – well, firstly, I think being their spokesperson for women is probably uh, – I would argue is is actually a promotion from being the spokesperson for skills when you're already education. But there was a logic to taking skills away. It wasn't a penalty by Anthony Albanese, even though those two aren't close, and I don't doubt he's watching over his shoulder because there's a lot of talk that she has leadership ambition. But it wasn't a demotion because the skills portfolio went into a big coronavirus um, recovery portfolio that was given to Richard Miles. See the irony of that as well, by the way. We're, we're not in government. Don't talk to us about details. We're setting up a coronavirus recovery portfolio when an election's not due for over a year and we're in opposition. Um, we will put that to one side. But th- there's a logic to that about why skills would be part of that, uh, the coronavirus recovery portfolio. It's a new super portfolio for Richard Miles. He is the Labor deputy leader. He gets to choose his portfolio. That became part of it. So, no, would be my answer. She was not demoted, uh, but certainly that was the enjoyable media narrative. And I suspect too, just quietly, that Albanese probably didn't mind that being the narrative to some extent as a bit of a rhetorical slapdown uh, to Tanya Plibersek, who has been brandishing her leadership credentials recently, uh, you know, with things like her book and some media work and all the rest of it. Gee, tough to uh, to uh, to flourish or get a name for yourself in the hard in the hard yards, the hard fields of opposition. <laughs> um, another name that uh, unquestionably has been demoted, Kevin Andrews, uh, the old time conservative. I'm not sure if he was one of the young fogies that uh, Paul Keating spoke of, but uh, after 30 years in uh, in the House, uh, cut down on his own side. Who else uh, on? the Liberal benches should be nervous when you see a guy like Kevin Andrews who's backed by everyone from the Health Minister Greg Hunt, the Treasurer Josh Frydenberg, former Prime Minister Tony Abbott, and still uh, got beaten for pre-selection. Who else should be nervous, do you think? Well, any of these old-timers who uh, you know, who aren't still at the front line contributing. You know, age isn't what's relevant here. What's relevant here is service. Uh, and Kevin Andrews has sort of been rotting on the backbench for some time. So any of them uh, would be my answer, should be worried. But also Mavericks like Craig Kelly, potentially. I mean, he's lost repeated pre-selections and been saved um, by party 
intervention essentially uh, to overturn those pre-selections. So, um, if did if, you if just on Craig the, Kelly? Did you get the impression from? So, sorry, sorry, just on Craig Kelly as he as he passes by. Did you get the impression from Scott Morrison at the National Press Club when he says he's doing a great job for Hughes? Uh, but don't take your medical advice from him, that that was a signal that Scott Morrison would go into battle to fight him to fight for him again? Well, it depends how he does it, though. Scott Morrison went into battle for Kevin Andrews, but not limit the pre-selection rules. They allowed a proper ballot to happen, and Andrews lost anyway. And I don't think when it goes to a proper ballot, you necessarily want Scott Morrison on your side because he lost his own pre-selection for Cook, something like 80 votes to eight. Um, but then had it overturned through special party processes, which we don't need to go into now. So the, the, the lesson for me in this is it doesn't really matter if Scott Morrison backs you unless it's his absolute, you know, sort of bread and butter heartland. And I guess Craig Kelly's seat is in New South Wales, which is Scott Morrison's backyard. So that may, maybe is better than Kevin Andrews getting his backing ahead of a local pre-selection in Victoria. But the issue is whether Scott Morrison intervenes to centralise the pre-selection process to essentially overrule the normal pre-selection practices. Normal pre-selection practices would see, I, I'm almost certain, Craig Kelly lose his pre-selection because he lost it twice in a row and was saved both times by party leaders. Once, I think, uh, well, both times maybe, uh, Malcolm Turnbull. Um, and then again, he was saved a third time, as I understand it, by uh, Scott Morrison. But that always involved overturning local pre-selection. So that's the real question. Scott Morrison backed Kevin Andrews, but wasn't prepared to overturn the local pre-selection. He just wanted Kevin Andrews to win. Uh, if he's only wanting the member for Hughes to win at a local pre-selection, well, that's kind of almost meaningless flam to some extent. And prime ministers do tend to back their incumbents. John Howard used to write uh, letters on behalf of every Sydney MP. You, you could then read the letters to read between the lines to see how strong his support was or or wasn't based on the letter that he wrote. I mean, I remember Peter King when he lost pre-selection to Malcolm Turnbull. He was the incumbent. He was only one term in. The letter that John Howard wrote for Peter King just said something like, yes, I support him at pre-selection. Please forward this reference in the usual manner with which I provide for all sitting MPs. <laughs> it was, he could hardly have made the reference less personal uh, and meaningful. So that will be the thing to watch with Scott Morrison. Does he actually try to intervene on the process with Craig Kelly, because if he doesn't, uh, I suspect he loses his pre-selection. A few nervous, uh, a few nervous libs uh, after Kevin Andrews' uh, uh, graceless comeuppance, I suppose. Um, Peter Van Anselm, we are over time, mm. but uh, great to have you back with us. A big year ahead, and uh, and and onward, as we say, and we'll keep listening. No doubt. Talk next week. Thanks, you. All the best. Take care, mate. Bye now. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.